Welcome to the first Sunday of February. Uh, great time for us to dive into a series on relationships, and we are going to be talking some about marriage and those kinds of things, but what we've chosen the title of this series very carefully. It's called Marriage, the Gospel on Display, because we're also going to be talking about the gospel. We're going to be talking about God's relationship with us as his people, and one of the cool things that we're going to see as we work our way through this is that marriage is intended to be a public display of the gospel. You realize that, right? That, that was God's design is that, that we are able to um, express the same qualities of relationship that God expresses to us. We're able to do that in context of marriage. So the things that we talk about will be helpful in any relationship. They certainly will be helpful for us in our own relationship with Christ and growing deeper in our relationship with Christ. And so I'm excited to jump in over the next few weeks. And we're going to spend a week each on these different topics starting today by talking about humility. Then we're going to talk about commitment. We're going to talk about forgiveness. And we're going to talk about intimacy. All of those things uh, important in the way we relate to God and his relationship with us, and certainly those are important in the context of a marriage as well. Uh, but we're going to be in Ephesians 5 in just a little bit, but let me begin by just jumping into, jumping ahead a little bit, and we'll come back to this verse a little bit later. But in Ephesians 5.32, it says something really interesting. Uh, he goes through and talks about how wives are to relate to husbands, how husbands are to re relate to wives, and gives a lot of really practical, specific instruction there. But then in Ephesians 5.32, after all this discussion, he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So right in the middle of this, it almost seems like out of nowhere, you know, he's obviously talking about husband and wife relationships, but then he says, no, I'm really talking about Christ and the church. I think that, that's the point here that I'm trying to get across is that marriage is to be a reflection of Christ's relationship with his church. And so the beginning point for us each week, and the beginning point I always should look and say, okay, how does God treat us? How does God express his love toward us? And then if we can take those qualities and pull those qualities over into our earthly relationships, maybe specifically in marriage, that'll be a really good thing. So let me tell you the greatest thing um, that happened to people like me who are not mechanically inclined, who uh, you know, just, just don't have that natural ability to know how to fix things and build things and all that. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, when I married Sean at the age of 22, uh, I didn't know any of that stuff. She comes from a family where her dad worked construction for many years before uh, developing his own architectural woodworking company that he had for decades. So he can literally build or fix anything. You talk about pressure for a 22-year-old who doesn't know anything. And so this was my habit when things would happen or I would, I would call her dad and I would ask for advice, right? And I would say, how do I do this? And he was really good. He was so patient with me. He never called me an idiot. I don't think that I can remember. But he would just explain to me how to do things over the phone. And that was great, but I have to tell you, after I got off the phone, I wasn't in a whole lot better place than I was before I called, right? Because I'm trying to remember, okay, so this and this and that. Let me tell you the greatest thing that's ever happened to people like me in that boat is called YouTube. YouTube is a lifesaver if you need to figure out how to do something and you don't know what you're doing, right? 
So now you get on YouTube and you just put in whatever the topic is. If there's something that needs to be repaired, fixed, built, whatever, you can pretty much find a video on YouTube. And here's what I've discovered. If I can watch somebody else do it, if there is a model and I can say, okay, you did that, now I hit the pause button, and then you did a little bit more and hit the pause button again, I can work my way through. I can do pretty much anything as long as I have a really good model to follow. In fact, I've gotten so good at it, I just totally rebuilt my engine on my car during the ice break. And that was, I'm kidding. Now, that's, that's going just a little too far. I'm not going to be rebuilding any engines anytime soon. But I'm a whole lot more confident taking care of things when I have a model that I can look toward. That's exactly what God has given us, really for all earthly relationships, but specifically for marriage. He's given us a model to look at, to say, if you want to know how things are supposed to work, Watch this. Watch the way Christ relates to his church. And so that's what we're going to do, starting in Philippians chapter 2. So if you want to open your Bible with me, we will jump over to Ephesians a little bit later. But we're going to begin in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, because today our topic is humility and how important that is in the context of relationships and in marriage. Starting in verse 5, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, this passage refers to a theological concept. I wonder if any of you have ever heard this term, kenosis, before. Uh, that, that refers to what is being described in Philippians chapter 2, and it comes from the word there uh, that is translated in, in verse 7, and the version I read from, made himself nothing. Other translations will say, emptied himself. It comes from a Greek word, kanao, which literally means to empty oneself. So the kenosis is this theological truth that Christ emptied himself uh, when he came to earth. And we're going to talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean here in just a moment. But what we do know is that it's also tied to the next thing he says in verse 7 when he says, by taking the very nature of a servant. Again, some translations will say, by taking the form of a servant. The Greek word there is morphe. So you might, might recognize that if something morphs into something else, right? It takes on a different form. Here's a really cool definition that I came across that describes what this word means. It means an outward expression that embodies the inner substance so that the form is in complete harmony with the inner essence. Okay, you get that? So the outward form comes into complete harmony with the inner essence. So when it says that Christ took on the form of a servant, what it's saying is this gave him the outward ability to display who he has always been because God in his very nature is a God who serves. And isn't that remarkable? But it's true. And so Christ had the opportunity to take on the form, the morphe of a servant that, that lined up with who he is, and think about all the things that, that he left behind. Back to this doctrine of kenosis, the emptying of himself. What it does not mean, by the way, is that he did not empty himself of his divinity. 
Jesus was no less God. He's, he's always been God. Even for that brief period of time that he lived here on earth, he has always been God. So we're not talking about him setting his godness aside to come to earth, but we are talking about him setting aside his glory, setting aside some of the privileges that were his. I mean, think about what Jesus left behind and, and, and what he traded for. I mean, he, he left streets of gold lined with mansions for streets of dirt that were lined with manure. He, he traded shouts of hallelujah, he is worthy to be praised for shouts of crucify him, he's not worthy to live. I mean, he left an eternity of being served for a lifetime of, of serving us. That's what he emptied himself of. He left these things behind and it took incredible humility for Christ to do that. So here's the first main idea for today is that humility begins with having the mind of Christ. That's what verse 5 says. In your relationships with one another, which would include marriage or any other relationship for that matter, have the same mindset of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. That's where it begins. And you know, it's absolutely remarkable to think that the God of the universe chose to humble himself. That he allowed himself to serve those that he had created. And not only that, but he allowed himself to be mistreated by those he created. There's incredible humility that's on display through the whole uh, Christ coming to earth and living as he did and dying in our place. So then the question is, why would he do that? The answer? Jesus gave us the answer, actually, in, in John 6, 38. It said, says there, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Why did he humble himself like that? Because that was the Father's will. That was the plan from the very beginning. And Jesus was all in on the plan from the very beginning. I mean, they, 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 this was part of the, the whole design of him coming to earth. And so Christ came knowing what he was getting himself into, knowing what would happen. And yet, I still don't think that we can fully grasp how shocking it is that God himself would allow this to happen, that he would go to the cross for us. I mean, I go back to the beginning of John's gospel where we're told that though the world was made by him, it didn't recognize him. And then it says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Not only did they not receive him, but they crucified him. That is unbelievable humility to go through with that. But the thing that's even more remarkable to me, not just that it happened, it is remarkable that it happened, but that he allowed it to happen. And we know that he didn't have to. I mean, Jesus said he could have called on the Father and he would have put at his disposal more than 12 legions of angels. A legion is, is somewhere uh, between three and 6,000. So he's saying, look, I, I definitely could have changed the circumstances here if I had chosen to do so, but he didn't. He willingly, going back to this, he allowed himself to go through this. He made himself obedient to death on the cross. Now, a sacrifice like that demands a response, don't you think? The fact that, that God did this for us, that Christ came and became a servant, he humbled himself, he allowed himself to be mocked, to be beaten, to be crucified. 
Now, the rest of the story, of course, is he didn't stay in the grave. Ron referenced a moment ago that Easter's not too far away, that day that we remember, but we always get to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. He's alive today, but he went through all of that for us. And, and that, that demands a response, don't you think? And really, there are only two ways that we can respond to what Christ has done. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. We can respond by confessing our sinfulness and putting our trust in him and acknowledging that he is our only hope. We're believing that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin and we're trusting in that and that alone for forgiveness. Or we can ignore it. Now, you might say, well, if I ignore it, I'm not really responding. But yeah, actually you are. To choose not to respond is a response. Now, there are consequences that come with that response. Consequences of separation from God. We continue to live because, guys, the reality is this. Our sin separates us from God. So that means in this lifetime, if we don't have Christ... We're separate from God. We're, we're not able to experience all that God wants us to have in this lifetime. But even more important than that is when this life is over, we will be separated from God forever in hell if we don't trust in Christ. That's the natural consequence of my sin and of your sin. That's what we deserve. But God loved us too much to leave us there. And so Christ came with this unbelievable plan of of dying in our place, taking on our sin, paying the penalty for us. It's remarkable that he would have that type of, of humility, but he did. Um, and it says, being found, verse 8, in appearance, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The ultimate expression of true humility, and that's why we need to have the mind of Christ. Now think about it. If we have the mind of Christ, which is one of submission and obedience... If we have that mindset in and of ourselves, how will that impact our relationship with God? If, if we're constantly thinking about how can I submit and obey to the Father like Jesus did, that would totally transform our personal relationship with God. But then think about this in context of marriage. How would marriages be transformed if both spouses had an attitude of submission and obedience toward God? Think that would change some things? If we were truly humble toward one another, if we were more selfless toward one another? I, I, I got online this week and was just you know, curious what kind of different information is out there. So I, I put in the question, I googled this question, what do couples fight about most? And there are all kinds of stuff that popped up, but there was a website uh, called Inc.com and it listed the top 10, but I'm just going to give you the top five. Here are the top five things that couples fight about the most. Number one, what do we spend money on? I think we can understand that one. How often do we have sex? Don't need to elaborate anymore on that one. Where are we spending Thanksgiving? Or in other words, do we have to go to your parents' house again? Or time with the family? You know, how do we decide who we spend time with? Number four. Were you just flirting with her? And then number five is who's doing the dishes or other household chores. You fill in the blank there. Now, that's just five. But, but, and, and we won't go through all of these. But, I mean, stop and think about this. What, what would happen if we had an attitude of, of service, humility, submission to one another when it comes to dealing with these issues? 
issues of how the money is being spent. I can tell you this, I don't think most of the tension in how money is being spent is you're spending too much on me. I don't think those arguments are typically what's happening, right? There's a disagreement about what priorities are or what matters most or there's a selfishness of I spent money on this because I wanted this for myself. So you can see how that would apply. What about how often do we have sex? You got one maybe that wants it more, one that wants it less. But what if both truly had an attitude of humility and submission and a desire to meet the needs of their spouse? Don't you think that would impact how you would relate to that issue? Where are we spending Thanksgiving? What, you know, how do we decide how, how much time we spend with whose family? Again, don't you think most of the time it's I want to do this? Or maybe it's I feel the pressure which there again, the selfishness might not just be on the part of the couple. It might be on the part of that couple's parents who are insisting on, you know, having all this time together. But, but selfishness, that's at the heart of everything that we deal with. But you can see in, in, in marriage issues specifically, if we have that heart of, of humility, if we have the mindset of Christ that is willing to submit and be obey. Uh, be obedient, then it makes all the difference in the world. The problem is, as I look at this and I look at um, you know, what happens in, in my own life and my relationship with my wife, Sean, and, and uh, I think about when we have disagreements, my tendency is to dig my heels in you know, and refuse to budge. You want to know why? Because I'm right. <laughs> and sometimes she does the same thing. And that's when we have problems, right? There's pride involved there. I want things, but I don't want to acknowledge. Now, how much difference would it make if I just had a different attitude and said, I'm sorry that I've hurt you here. How can I serve you better in this situation? That would just totally transform everything, right? One simple little mindset change. And here's the thing that's so crazy. I look at this and I'm like, but I am instructed to have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is one of humility. And the irony here is... Jesus is the only one who actually was right all the time. I'm not. He was, and yet he still set aside what he deserved in order to come and serve us. The only one who actually could have been proud wasn't. And yet, sometimes I just get so proud and want to dig my heels in and think I'm right and it's absurd when you take a step back and look at it like that. But think about the impact that that has on relationships, how that would impact our marriages and other relationships for that matter. If we just had the mind of Christ, if we had the humility that Jesus has. And so I have to tell you that the only, this kind of maybe goes without saying, but the only way for that to happen is for Christ to be preeminent in our own lives. If we're not following Jesus, really, I mean, really following him as Lord and submitting to him, then we aren't prepared to have this type of, of mindset in our relationship with one another. So it starts with us following Jesus and really um, you know, having a close relationship there. But then I, I read this, and there's another thing. Not only does it instruct us to have the mind of Christ, but it goes on and talks about what happens as a result of Jesus' humility and desire to, to obey his Father. And that's number two, is that humility leads to service. That's why Jesus did what he did. Humility is more than just a mindset. It begins with a mindset, but it actually fleshes itself out 
by us serving one another, just as Jesus served us and the things that he went through for us. Now, let's, if, you're, if you got your Bible open to Philippians 2, where we've been, if you actually have a physical Bible, you can turn back probably about two pages, because I want you to pull up Ephesians chapter 5. So it's you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all those fun things, girls eat popcorn, General Electric Power Company, however you want to remember those four to kind of keep them there together. But So Ephesians comes right before Philippians, and at the end of Ephesians in chapter 5, Starting in verse 21, it says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so let's start getting real practical in here. So, okay, what does it look like for us, this humility to lead us to serve one another? Well, first of all, we remind ourselves that we are to submit to one another, again, out of reverence for Christ. You see that emphasis there, having the mind of Christ out of reverence for Christ, we submit to each other. But then let's keep reading verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So basically what he's doing is he's carrying on this, this idea from verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And actually the word wives is not in verse 22. It's just a continued thought. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And, and he goes on. So let's, let me just make a brief statement about what he is saying and what he is not saying in this little section of scripture. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But let me just say this. Number one, he is saying that God has called men to be the leaders of their home and that he is instructing the wife to submit to, to that, to, to, to step back enough to let your husband lead. What it does not mean is that the husband is the sole authority in the home and that the wife has no input or no say in things. That's not at all what it means. There is nothing in this passage of Scripture that would teach a uh, male dominance kind of a, a mentality. And we'll see that in a minute as we continue reading on. You have to keep reading verse 25 through 28 after this. You can't just pull this one section of Scripture out by itself. If you do, you'll end up with a really dangerous uh, uh, understanding of how men and women are to relate to one another. Um, but, you know, I, I look at this and I apply this in the context, again, of my own marriage. And, and this May will be 30 years that Sean and I will have been married. And so we've, we've had some experience uh, working through uh, how do we do things, how do we make decisions. And I can tell you that she believes in the importance of, of male leadership in the home probably more than any, as much as any woman that I know. Okay? So I just want to say that as a foundation. She would be the first person to say Wives submit to your husbands means you look to him as a leader. But let me tell you this. In 30 years of marriage almost, I'm not sure. There, maybe there's been a time, but if there are, there are extremely rare situations where I would make a decision without her being on board and us going together. Because we're a couple. We're a team, right? We're, we're one. And so the fact that I've been called by God and given responsibility by God to lead the family doesn't mean that I just say, hey, you know, you just be quiet over there, keep your thoughts to yourself, and I'll tell you what we're going to do. That's not the idea. You know why? Because I'm smart enough to know that my wife has a lot of wisdom, all right? She, she really has sensitivity toward things, and so we discuss everything. 
and we talk about everything together. Now, ultimately, there may be some times where she's like, I just need you to decide. Okay, that's my responsibility. Step up and do that. Um, but you do that in the context of, of working together, teamwork. This does not at all mean that a guy just runs off by himself and does what he wants. Now, continue on, and we'll see that in verse 25. Where it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So my responsibility as a husband is to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Guys, that's, that's a tall order, isn't it? That service, again, wives, submit to your husbands, serve them in that way, look to them as leaders. Husbands, submit to your wives by, by serving her, by leading her uh, through service and being willing to lay down your life for her. See, the goal here is that service should be motivated by love. Christ's service for us, his willingness to lay down his life, as it says, uh, as Christ laid down his life for the church, that was motivated, yes, we said by a desire to do the Father's will, we've already covered that, but it was also motivated by his love for us. It was motivated by the fact that he wants a relationship, he doesn't want to leave us stuck in our sinfulness, separated from him. And service should always be motivated by love. You know what we call it when service is forced we call that slavery. And I think all of us would agree slavery is not a good thing. So we're not talking here about forced service. Now, granted, the scripture does talk in places about being slaves of Christ and that kind of thing. But that is a different word. It's a voluntary um, a, a desire to follow him and become a slave of his uh, on our own. But what he's talking about here is us willingly serving one another out of love and that should be motivated uh, that should be the motivation for for why we serve each other but here's the reality some of you live in a situation in a relationship where that love isn't there right now that that bond isn't there as it should be and so the question becomes what do i do when I don't feel like it, when, we're, when the closeness isn't there and I don't have a desire to serve my spouse, what do I do? And the answer is you serve anyway. Now you might say, wait a minute, I thought you just said that it should be motivated by love. Absolutely. And that's true. And that's what we should strive toward. But have you discovered, as I have, that sometimes in life and sometimes in the things that God calls us to do, Sometimes we just have to start by doing what's right. We have to start with an attitude of obedience, even if the feelings aren't quite there yet. And sometimes you have to start by serving one another, even if you don't feel like it. Any of you see years ago, see the movie called Fireproof? That was based on a story of a husband and wife that had a difficult relationship. And, and uh, you know, kind of cool story behind it. And it's predictable, like, you know, all the... Movies like that tend to be. But, but there was a cool story. The part that I loved is he took on what they called a love dare. And that love dare involved serving his wife in several different ways. And at the beginning, it was, you know, more obligation. And then over time, it became, you know, something that his heart was in more. Now, that, that's, that's a picture of what we do 
of how we serve one another. And I just want to encourage you in this, that if you find yourself in a place where it's difficult in your relationships, and it may not even be a marriage, it could be a friendship, it could be a family relationship, and you find it difficult to serve that other person, to just do it anyway. Just, if nothing else, as an expression of your, your worship of God. God, this is not easy. In fact, I go back to Ephesians 5, verse 22, where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You know, one of the ways we can understand that, that phrase is, submit to your husbands as an expression of submitting to the Lord. You know, as, as a means of worship. And if we take that mindset and apply it uh, in other areas of our lives, then you know, that's how we're able to serve. The only way you get there, the only way I know, is by having enough confidence in who we are in our relationship with God that we're able to set aside some of our pride and some of the difficulties in order to serve. Now, you know, recently in my devotion times I've been going through, I'm doing a chronological Bible this year and reading through, so I'm in Exodus now, and, and this week, or within the last week or so, I've read about Moses and the burning bush, and God appears to him and tells him, go deliver the people. And he says, who will I tell them has sent me? What if they ask me your name? And you remember God's response, right? God's response was, I am who I am. And then he says, tell them that the I am has sent you. And, you know, I, it just hit me in a fresh way as I read that. I thought, wow, God didn't identify himself based on his accomplishments or things that he's done. He identified himself just based on who he is. And our identity really is tied to the fact that we serve the I am. And if we can find our identity and find our security in him and who he is and how we relate to him, then that frees us up to be able to serve one another in love. So I'd encourage you to look for opportunities to say, how can I serve those around me? If you're married, start there in your relationship with your spouse. If you're not, find others that you're close to. And ask the question, am I serving others the way God would have me to serve? And if you are married, ask this simple question. Does my marriage reflect God's relationship with the church? And if the answer is no, I want you to know this, it can. It can. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some work. But you can get there if you will just put your whole heart into following Christ and living out these principles of how he relates to us in your relationship with your spouse. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I do pray today that the humility and service that you have demonstrated toward us, that we demonstrate toward one another. And I, I do pray specifically for married couples today. Because, Lord, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of selfishness that works its way into our relationships. And so I just pray today that we're able to work beyond that and to serve the way you would have us to serve. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.